You'll have to excuse me this morning if I don't see my normal self. I've been under the weather a little bit, so if I'm a little more fuzzy-headed than usual, I have an excuse for it, huh? It's always good to have an excuse. Certainly it's good to see everyone here this morning and pray you're all doing well. It's, uh, it's always great to have Pat and the gang up here leading us in worship, isn't it? There was this husband and wife, and uh, uh, they were fighting. Nothing too unusual about that, I guess, huh? And uh, they were giving each other the silent treatment, and I guess there's nothing unusual about that. However, this man, this husband, he had to leave early the next morning, uh, 5 a.m., for a business trip, and he needed his wife to wake him up. So not to want to break the silence, he decided to write her a note. And on the note, it read, please wake me up at 5 a.m. And then he placed it on her side of the bed. Well, the next morning, he woke up at 8 a.m. And he missed his airplane. And needless to say, he was rather upset. And he was going to talk to his wife about this in no uncertain terms. And then suddenly he saw a piece of paper next to his pillow. And uh, the piece of paper was a note. And the note read, it's 5 a.m., wake up. All right, it's a little silly, but it's the best I got this morning. Well, this morning we are going to continue our study in the book of Revelation, and we are at Revelation chapter 20, believe it or not, and I've entitled the message this morning, Hope Realized, Hope Realized. Father, I just thank you for every person here. I thank you for the worship team. Always thank you for the Sunday school teachers and youth workers and all who volunteer, those that put up the chairs and take them down, and uh, the sound and skip. And Lord, I'm just so thankful for so many, many of the volunteers who just give of their time and their talents to you. May you bless them. I believe you invited every person here this morning. I believe that you have a word for us all. And so I just ask that that word would come forth as you intended to come forth, and it would produce all that you determined that it would be produce in eternity past. I ask that you would fill me from the soles of my feet to the crown of my head. That the words that I speak would be truly words of life because they'd be your words. May you make Revelation chapter 20, at least the first portion, come alive this morning. And I just ask for this in your precious name. Amen. Tell you, isn't that a great song? something about an amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It just breathes a hope, doesn't it? And I don't think there's probably a person here this morning that doesn't hope that in some way, somehow, their life might get better. And the better may simply be finding a mate and a family and having a family, or the better might be having better relationships with the people around you, or the better might be better health or a better job or less stress in your life, or just feeling more fulfilled in your life, or not feeling so down and depressed and discouraged. I don't know what the better might be for you, but there's probably nothing wrong with it in and of itself. But my question to you this morning is, what is the reality? And you mean, well, what do you mean by the reality? The reality is we live in a very fallen world, if you haven't noticed. We live in a world that is full of hatred. We live in a world that's in turmoil. And sadly, uh, at least some of the time, we have to take responsibility for some of the things that we see happening around us because of the bad decisions that we make. 
But we've been studying the book of Revelation, and unfortunately, Revelation tells us that things are going to get worse before they get better. And this is going to happen for many, many reasons, and I just want to remind you at least of three of those reasons why things will get worse before they get much, much better. Reason number one, the world and even this country is becoming increasingly more godless if you haven't already noticed that. And when people become more godless, they make more selfish decisions and they act in more immoral ways. And Jesus says when this happens, people's hearts grow cold. Their love grows cold. And you're going to continue to see a coldness growing not only in this country, but also sadly in this world. The second reason why you're going to see things get worse and worse is because of the restraining work of the Holy Spirit. One of the key jobs of the Holy Spirit, one of the key functions is that he retards evil. And I've told you that America's under judgment. And what that means is that the Holy Spirit is lifted off and he's no longer retarding or curtailing evil in this country. But you also see it happening, by the way, in this world. And I believe, for example, that ISIS is a good example of the Holy Spirit being lifted off of not only this country, this world, and God allowing Satan and the demonic kingdoms to have its sway. There's a third reason, though, why I think that things are going to get worse before they get better. And I believe, and I've told you before, that I think there's going to be a tremendous economic collapse and judgment coming very shortly. And that is certainly going to create some short-term problems for most of us. We are going to experience some hardship as a result. But more importantly, I believe that this economic judgment, this economic calamity that's certain to come upon the world is going to pave the way for the new world ruler who the Bible calls the Antichrist. You know, So often, and I can't speak for you, but so often, or at least sometimes, I find myself getting disappointed and discouraged. And I kind of ask myself, Frank, why are you disappointed? Why are you discouraged? And of course, the short answer is because my expectations exceed my experience. And that's generally why we're disappointed and discouraged. And then, you know, all of a sudden, I have to bring myself back to truth. And I say, well, why am I discouraged about my circumstances? Because if I believe what I just spoke to you about, and I really believe what the Bible has to say about the times that we are living in, then, you know, any sane person, certainly at least any believer, would have to expect, wow, I should expect some hardship in my life. I should expect that, you know, there's going to be some real trials and tribulations coming my way, and, 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 and things aren't going to be so always so great in Rosie and Frank Ray's life. Now, I know that some people are, oh, great, here's Frank again. He's going to steal our joy and our hope again. He's that hope and joy killer. You know, I hear what people say, you know, and... Uh, I appreciate that back there. But you know, if if you knew me, that is just not true. That is just not true. I, I have a great hope in my heart. I want you to know this morning. I have a great hope. I don't have a false hope, but I have a great hope, and I want to share it with you that in just a few moments. But I also believe that we should have joy. We really should have joy, but there's a real joy versus the pseudo joy that's being peddled so often from the American pulpits that's nothing more than manipulation of circumstances and trying to manipulate God. 
You know, the Apostle Peter, trying to encourage the early believers 2,000 years ago, he wrote these words in 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you have these, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter. And uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 3, Peter says this. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again. Now, that's something to rejoice about. We've been born again. Born again means that you have new life inside you. You are a new creation. You have the power. You have the living God inside you. You are being transformed. That's pretty exciting. Because God raised Jesus from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. Why, Peter? We have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, this future inheritance, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. Watch Peter now, verse 6. So be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you have to endure many trials for a little while. You know, Peter says that in this life we should expect to suffer. We should expect to experience trials and tribulations. But he says, you know what? We should rejoice. Why should we rejoice? I'll tell you why we should rejoice. Because our hope as believers, our hope is bright. Our hope in our future is great. And Peter says that we should rejoice because of that. And let me tell you, that gospel, that good news, will preach in India. And it will preach in Africa. And it will preach in China. And it will preach anywhere where Christians are being persecuted. That is the good news. Now, the last chapters of the book of Revelation talk about this great, incredible hope that awaits every single one of us who is truly a follower of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 20, starting at verse 1. Revelation 20, starting at verse 1, says this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He, that is the angel, seized the dragon that old serpent who was the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and the people sitting on them that had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They all came to life again. That's not a reference, by the way, to soul sleep. That is a reference to their resurrected bodies. They received their resurrected bodies. And they regained and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life that is resurrected until the thousand years had ended. 
This, by the way, is uh, called the great white throne judgment. So you have the first resurrection, which is the resurrection unto life. This is the resurrection of, of believers, and it generally occurs at the rapture of the church and also when Jesus comes back visibly. And then there's the second resurrection, which is the resurrection unto death, and that is the great white throne judgment, and we'll look at that next week. And verse 6 says this, Blessed And holy are those who share in the first resurrection, because that's unto life. For them, the second death holds no power. That means they will not be cast into hell, separated from God for all eternity. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So... What John has just talked about here in verses 1 through 6 in Revelation 20 is what we call the millennium. Skip, can you put up the chart just to kind of give us a a view of the whole thing? See, we've talked about the whole tribulation period starting with the four horsemen of the apocalypse, horse number one, seal number one being the Antichrist, and he will make a covenant with the nation of Israel, guaranteeing them seven years' peace. And seven seals later, we finally get to the Battle of Armageddon, where Jesus comes back visibly. There'll be a restoration period, and then you see that term millennium. That's going to be a thousand years where God literally is going to reign in the person of Jesus Christ on planet Earth. And do you know that this was the great hope of the Old Testament prophets? In fact, Isaiah Some say the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He foresaw the millennium and God, the Messiah, ruling for a thousand years. He saw it in his mind's eye 2,700 years ago. He wrote this in Isaiah chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. And we read this in Isaiah chapter 11. Starting at verse 1. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor, and he will make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will love together. The leopard will lie down with a baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put his hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. Can you imagine a time like that? It's a tremendous time of peace and tranquility that is going to reign on planet Earth. And I want you to know that there's no human ruler that is going to be able to bring this about whatsoever. You know, I cannot implore you enough that we need to quit looking for government leaders, politicians, uh, Governments to solve our problems. 
There is no human being, and I I cannot stress this enough, there is no human candidate that is going to bring about what you just read in Isaiah in chapter 11. I mean, I want to be crystal clear on this. It's not until the Prince of Peace comes that you will really see peace and prosperity on this planet. In fact, the prophet Micah, who was a contemporary of Isaiah, he wrote these words in Micah chapter 4 and verse 1. Skip, can you put those up? He wrote this, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills, and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There there he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. His word will go forth from Jerusalem. The Lord will mediate between people and will settle disputes between strong nations far away. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. Everyone will live in peace and prosperity, enjoying their grapevines and fig trees, for there will be nothing to fear. The Lord of heaven's armies has made this Promise. I love that. Micah writes these words. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into hooks for trimming trees. Nation will no longer raise swords against other nations. They will not train for war anymore. Do you know where these words can be found? They are emblazoned on the United Nations building. Skip, can you put that up? Those words were not only recorded by Micah, but by the Hebrew prophet Isaiah. Do you realize that one Bible verse is the hope? It is the hope of this world. It is the hope of humanity. And humanity is looking for a man. See, this is the scary part to me. They're looking for a man who is somehow going to be this great new world ruler who's going to bring this about. And the Bible tells us in Revelation that there is going to be coming a new world ruler. But he's not going to bring peace and prosperity. He is instead going to bring division and ultimately destruction upon this world. Micah 4.3, as much as I want to see it achieved and as much as you wanted to see it achieved, it will not be achieved, I want you to know, until the King of kings and the Lord of lords returns to planet earth. That's why every day it says at the end of Revelation, come Lord Jesus, come, right? Come Lord Jesus, come. We want to see him come. Wouldn't you like to live in something like that? Can you imagine that? That's going to happen one day here on planet earth. This is, by the way, this is, that's real hope. This is the great hope of humanity. Now, there's one major reason why no human being can ever bring peace and prosperity to this planet, and that reason is found in Revelation chapter 20 and verses 2 and 3. Skip, can you put those back up? Notice what it said. It said, he, that's the angel, the powerful angel, sees the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterwards, he must be released for a little while. Do you realize that during the millennium, Satan will be neutralized? Satan will be completely and totally neutralized. And there's only one power great enough to neutralize Satan and his activity, and that is the living God. 
That is God. Only God can neutralize Satan. Now, sadly, many people, in fact, I would say most people really underestimate Satan and his influence in not only their own lives, but also this world. And that is a tragic, tragic mistake. In fact, I would say that Satan's greatest tool, his greatest tool is deception. And he's got most people believing that he doesn't really exist. Or if he exists, he really uh, has no effect on their lives. That would be a major mistake. And In fact, what really was totally stunning to me, I just read this last week, that George Barna, the foremost religious pollster in America, said that almost 50% of born-again believers, American evangelicals, do not believe in a being in a personal being called Satan. Can you believe that? Now, see, if you don't really believe that he exists, that gives him big advantage over you. It gives him a big advantage over me. And so as we wind this thing down this morning, I just want to share with you what I consider are the three great tactics or the three great tools of Satan. Now, I'm not going to mention his greatest one again. His greatest one is his deception in getting us to believe that he doesn't really exist or that he has very little power. But other than that, I want us to look, as we wind this thing down this morning, at the three great tactics of Satan. All right? Tactic number one, lies. Jesus said in John 8, he, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. Do you know what Satan's greatest lie is? Well, we go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, and Satan said to Eve, did God say? You see, that's how he always starts out. He plants doubt within us. And see, doubt sets us up for the lie. And do you know what Satan's two greatest lies are? Well, look with me. We see him in Genesis chapter 5, starting at verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me. Genesis chapter 3, excuse me, starting at verse 1. says this. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It is only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And as Paul Harvey said, We all know the rest of the story. Eve took a bite of the apple, didn't she? But please notice, it all started with Satan planting doubt. Did God really say? And once you bite down on that, then it sets you up for the lie. And the lie here is the great lie. He, I mean, he went for the jugular with Eve. He said, Eve, how can God be good? You know, if God is good, why wouldn't he let you take fruit from that beautiful tree that will give you knowledge of divinity? God isn't for you. God is against you. And you know what Eve did? Eve toyed with the temptation. You ever toyed with temptation? Let me tell you what happens when you toy with temptation. You will fall. 
See, what Eve needed to do right away, see, you got to shut the door. Eve should have said, Satan, it is written. God said, I shall not eat from that tree. And she should have closed that door. But you see, if you don't close that door, and we've all done it, haven't we? We've all toyed with that temptation. And once you toy with it, trust me, you'll fall. And going with that lie that God is not good, Satan also was able to slip in the second most devastating lie. God is not trustworthy. See, these are the two great lies of Satan. He sets you up with doubt, and doubt leads to lie number one, that God's not for you, that God's not good, and that leads you to believing that God is not trustworthy. Now, once Satan has you there, now he's got you on the ropes. And this leads to tactic number two. Tactic number two is rebellion. Do you know what rebellion is? You know what rebellion is? Rebellion is when you and I take things into our own hands. See, God, you're not good. You're really not trustworthy, so I've got to take it back my life, and I've got to, you know, take control of things. That is rebellion. We find kind of a very interesting story in the Old Testament book of 1 Chronicles. Skip, can you put that up? If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, and we find this story of the great King David. says this, starting at verse 1. Satan rose up against Israel and caused David to take a census of the people of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, take a census of all the people of Israel from Beersheba in the south to Dan in the north and bring me report so I may know how many there are. But Joab replied, may the Lord increase the number of his people a hundred times over. But why, my lord the king, do you want to do this? Are they not all your servants? Why must you cause Israel to sin? But David the king was insisted that they take the census. So Joab traveled throughout all Israel to count the people. Then he returned to Jerusalem and reported the number of people to David. There were 1,100,000 warriors in all of Israel who could handle the sword and 470,000 in Judah. Drop down with me to verse 7. God was very very displeased with the census, and he punished Israel for it. Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by taking this census. Please forgive my guilt for doing such a foolish thing. Can you believe it? That that Satan was able to get the great King David, the man after God's own heart, to rebel. Now, people look at this and they say, well, you know, What's the big deal, Frank? What's the big deal about taking a census of the nation of Israel? What's the big deal about numbering how many soldiers and military people that you have? Well, I'll tell you what the big deal is. The short answer is that David knew that he was always, as the king of Israel, to rely and count on God to protect him and the nation of Israel, not the size of his kingdom and not the size of his army. He knew that. But yet Satan was able to fool him and get him to rebel, to take things into his own hands. How was he able to do that? That's the big question. And the answer is always context, context, context. And the context is 1 Chronicles chapter 20. And we see a fuller account in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 12. And the 
scene is this. King David has just committed adultery with Bathsheba. He then ostensibly puts a hit on her husband Uriah. And he has him killed. And so God comes down hard on King David. And watch what God does to David. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 2 Samuel in chapter 12. Verse 11. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause... Now watch what happens to David. I will cause your household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it in secret, David, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all of Israel. You know, this is something that sadly really isn't taught anymore in church. But do you understand that there are consequences to sin? Even though you are forgiven, there are consequences to sin. Now, for the believer, there are only temporal consequences, not eternal consequences, but there are temporal consequences to when you and I sin. In other words, when you sin and I sin, we don't sin in isolation. Sin is a very very dangerous thing because it impacts the people around us. And David should be a tremendous lesson to us all. Here was a man after God's own heart, and I don't want to get into why he committed adultery, and then he covers it up with murder, but the end result is it had a tremendous impact on his sons. And do you realize that his sons, Ammon and Absalom, both rebelled against him as a result? There are consequences to our sins, even as believers, temporal ones. Now, I like verse 13. Look at verse 13. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against God. Now, I love David. You know, one thing about David, this guy's a passionate guy. I mean, he does everything passionately. When he sins, he sins well. But you know, when he repents, he repents well. And there's some really false teachers running around today. I'll tell you, there's a lot of false teachers running around in America. And they tell you, you know, when you sin, you don't have to confess your sin. That is a lie. That is a lie. When you sin, and when I sin, not only do we need to confess our sin, we need to repent of our sin. You know why it's necessary? Because when we confess and repent, we get a cleansing. We get a cleansing, and then our relationship with God is restored. So don't let anyone tell you that you do not need to confess your sin and repent of your sin. You do as a believer. You absolutely do for cleansing and restoration. And then it says this. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the Lord by doing this, your child will die. Your child will die. And I imagine in that moment, Satan came up to, to, to David, and he whispered in his ear, David, look, God's against you now. Look at his punishment, his discipline is way, way out of line here. You can't trust him. He's not for you anymore. You got to get control of your life, David. And you know what? I think David did bite down and he took that census. I think that's why he took that census. And I want us to understand something. There's some great words in Hebrews chapter 12 for believers because we're all going to experience God's disciplining hand. And, you know, it, it, 
take this as encouragement because it really is important that we respond rightly to the Lord's disciplining head. He does discipline his children. In fact, it says in Hebrews chapter 12. So it's not just David. It's going to be us. It says this in verse 5. Have you forgotten the encouraging words God speaks to you as his children? My children, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. And don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes each one he accepts as his own child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own child. Who ever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does one of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of our father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the very best they knew how. But God's discipline is always what? Always what? God is good, and God is good all the time. It's always good for us so that we might share in his holiness, because in holiness comes freedom. In purity is freedom. Now watch this. Verse 11, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. I don't know. And maybe you're under the hand of God this morning. Maybe you're experiencing this disciplining hand. Here's, here, here, here's you know, what I, I, I would tell you as advice. Don't fight it. Don't fight it. The smart person gets down on their hands and their knees and say, God. I have sinned. I know what I did is wrong. And I submit myself to your gracious discipline. You know, when you do that, you put a smile on God's face. He begins to work in your life. And you will have a fruitful harvest as a result. I promise you that. The third tactic of Satan is a logical one from Tactic number one and two. Tactic number one is to plant doubt, which leads to the two lies. God is not good. He's not for you. He's not trustworthy, which leads to tactic number two, which is rebellion. I need to take control of my own life, which leads to tactic number three, division and strife. Do you have division and strife in your home? Nobody has division and strife, huh? No. Do you know that the home is the foundation block for society? And there's all kinds of division and strife because we've got people who no longer really believe God is good and trustworthy, and they've taken control of their own lives. And can you imagine when a husband and wife does that? And all of a sudden, you get real friction when you've got two people living selfishly, controlling their own lives. That's really the story of the average Christian marriage. So you just extrapolate that out. You have that happening in the homes. What do you think is going to be happening in the cities? Have that in the cities. What do you think is going to be happening in the nation? Have that happen in the nations. What do you think is going to be happening in the world? And that's exactly what's going on. And that's why the world is in the state it's in. And can you imagine, though? We're told in Revelation chapter 20, there is a time coming called the millennium when Satan will be completely and totally neutralized. Won't that be awesome? He will not be able to devour anybody like a roaring lion. So here's how I end this morning. I think we can begin to experience the millennium now. Not totally, 
But I want to challenge us in our homes and here to begin to experience the millennium. You say, well, how are you going to do that? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. So this, I want to make this a life memory verse. I don't think there's any more important verses than Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It goes like this. You should remember, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust in the Lord with everything you have. I mean, if you do nothing else, you hold to the word of God and you say, God, I'm trusting you completely and totally. I believe you are good. That's what that means. You won't let go of God and believing in his goodness. Then it says, lean not on your own understanding. Don't bite down that God is not good and begin to rebel by taking control of your own life. In all your ways, acknowledge him. In everything you do, seek God's counsel. God, is this in accordance with your will? Is this in accordance with what you want me to do? And then it says, he will make your path straight. He will give you a fruitful and productive life. And that's what every single person here wants. In in the millennium, that's what everybody's going to be practicing, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. But you can start to bring a little bit of the millennium not only into your own life, but in the lives of those around you by practicing it. That's my challenge for us here as a family at BCC. Father, I do look forward to the day. I can't imagine, as I was thinking about this message, I can't imagine a world where Satan is bound. And there's no more lies. No more lies. No more deception. No more rebellion. No more strife and division. We look forward to that day. Our spirits cry out for the day. We even want it now, Lord, for our own lives and our own families. And Lord, it is truly within our grasp if we would just begin to practice each one of us, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. So I pray as we sing this last song that you'll just begin to breathe a fresh faith in your word. Your word is true, and it can lead us to life. It truly can. And I pray for this in Jesus' precious name.